Hello, welcome to Illustrated Research. My name is Leela Thompson. I am the lead behind Illustrated Research, which is an Instagram, blog, website, YouTube, the whole nine yards, focused around scientific communication and making science research a little bit more accessible and a little bit more easy to understand to the public. For the month of October, we officially launched our Instagram and one of our features is that we want to highlight endangered species in a series called Species Sundays. And long story short, I randomly picked the California tiger salamander as the first species. And then I thought, well, what if the whole entire month was kind of focused around amphibians and reptiles? The study of amphibians and reptiles is herpetology. And so herpetology plus October, herptober, no, not herpes. That's what my mom thought when I first said it, but herpetology, the study of amphibians and reptiles. And so I'm a student at the University of Miami. And so I thought, well, there has to be someone that has some knowledge on herpetology or is a herpetologist. Lo and behold, I happened upon Christopher Searcy, who is a professor and researcher at the University of Miami, who not only is a herpetologist, but also has done years and years of research on the California tiger salamander, specifically on its environment, demographic modeling, and all these kind of things that we're going to get into in a minute. So we sat down, we interviewed him about his past research and some of the current research that he's doing at the University of Miami. So sit back, relax, enjoy, and let's get into the interview. I'm Christopher Searcy. I'm an assistant professor in the biology department at University of Miami. Um, so I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, my family has a long history of academics. So my grandfather actually studied salamanders um, as his part of a large part of his career. Um, so every summer. Uh, we would go visit him. He had a summer house in the mountains in North Carolina, which has the highest salamander diversity in the world. And so I would help him collect animals for his experiments. And, you know, as a little kid, you go out at night with a headlamp and you get to actually grab live animals. It's pretty exciting. And so um, pr from a pretty young age, I decided that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a herpetologist and um, just sort of kept being a passion of mine um, up into undergrad where I joined a herpetology lab and started actually doing research in it. Um, you know, I, you know, all of the graduate schools I applied to were related to herpetology and uh, when I arrived in graduate school, my uh, professor said, this is like the first week I arrived, is at UC Davis in um, California. Um, <coughs> I've set up this giant drift fence array. It's um, I don't know, 600 pitfall traps or something. The postdoc who is supposed to run it is leaving for a new job. Would you like to collect the data? Because we have this giant setup, we have funding, but we don't have anyone to actually lead the experiment. And I said, that sounds great. 
because it was about salamanders, it was about an endangered species. I was also very passionate about conservation, and so this seemed like the perfect project. And so um, my very first month as a graduate student, I started collecting data on this endangered species and you know, just loved it. It, it was, uh, you know, every rainy night you had to be have the traps open and you'd go out early the next day and determine where the salamanders had been based on you know, where you captured them, how they were positioned across the landscape. And so it was a lot of field work. I also liked being outside a lot. Um, sometimes it was on the worst possible days because maybe it didn't stop raining during the night and it's you know a huge, very powerful wind storm the next morning, but I just really liked it. And so I continued doing that uh, throughout all six years of my graduate school, and then I stayed for a two-year postdoc. So I ended up with eight years of uh, very um, uniformly collected data um, that was all very comparable to each other. So that ended up being a really great data set to have, because then once you know that much about a species, you can really start getting into the details of its life history and population dynamics. And so can you give a little bit of some background on the California tiger salamander and like what it is as a species just for someone right. that might not know about it? Um, so, should I be looking? To me. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> um, so, it's an endangered species. Um, primarily, the reason it was originally listed was due to habitat loss. So, um, most salamanders like mesic woodlands because amphibians have um, porous skin that they can do water exchange through, and so they need a pretty wet environment to not risk losing all of the water in their body to, to desiccation. Um, but tiger salamanders are the one group of salamanders that has evolved to live in grasslands. Right? And so um, there's about 16 species, and they're throughout the Great Plains of the US, Canada, down into Mexico. Um, and then there's this one species that's split away from all the rest in California. It probably used to be continuously distributed, but then uh, the Sierra Nevada got lifted up and the rain shadow created by that dried out the American Southwest and now that's not good amphibian habitat and so there's this break and it's separate from all the other ones. So it is the, out of the 16 species, is the one that is most different from all the others. And so um, <coughs> since it likes living in these grasslands, that's also where humans most like to develop or either for housing or for agriculture. And so basically it used to be all over the Central Valley of California, which in the 1800s got turned into one of the main agricultural regions of the United States. And so that's even here in the US, a lot of our fruits and vegetables are coming from the Central Valley. And so when people tilled the soil, um, most of their lives, vast majority of their lives are in these underground burrows. And so that's the only way they can persist in a dry grassland is to mostly not be out exposed to the heat. And uh, as soon as you till the soil, you remove the burrow system, and so you're killing all of the salamanders. And so they lost over half of their original range to that agricultural development. And so that was the primary reason that they got listed. They're also now facing other threats such as invasive species and climate change.
So that's actually one of the papers that I read about was the invasive species and the hybrids and things like that. Can you kind of talk about that research that you did? Yeah, so this is a, <coughs> a very interesting story. Um, around 1950, a guy from the Salinas Valley uh, drove out to Texas in his pickup truck filled the bed of the pickup truck with water, filled the water with larval tiger salamanders, drove back to California, and distributed these larval salamanders across his pond and two ponds that a bunch of his friends owned. And so the reason he did this is because, as I said, California tiger salamanders are the most different of all the tiger salamander species, and so their larvae don't get nearly as large as all the other ones. And so he knew that Texas tiger salamander larvae got really big, and that made them better as bait for bass fishing. And so he was a bass fisherman. A lot of his friends were bass fishermen. So he was just doing them this nice favor of bringing them back better bait. Um, you know, 1950, before the Endangered Species Act, nothing legal about any of this. And so he was actually happy to sit down with researchers at UC Davis and tell exactly which ponds he distributed them to, which has been a great resource um, for um, subsequent genetic analyses. Because what it turned out, you know, no one was thinking about this at all at the time, is that even though they've been separated from the rest of the tiger salamanders for three to five million years, it turns out they can still interbreed. And so this Texas species started interbreeding with the tiger, California tiger salamanders that were there and produce these hybrids, which are more fit than either of the parental species. And so uh, as a result, they have started to expand away from the original set of ponds he put them in. And so now about a quarter of the California tiger salamanders range is filled with these hybrids. And so now that's another one of the main threats is that the genetically pure California tiger salamander is being replaced by this Thing that is a mix of Texas and California genes. Can the hybrid um, salamanders breed within themselves? Yeah, so everything's fully fertile. Um, the F1s, the F2s, both of the parental back crosses. And so uh, since they got dumped off in 1950 and a tiger salamander generation is four years maybe, um, it's been like maybe 20 generations since then, and so at this point, the hybrids can be anywhere on the genetic spectrum between full Texas and full California. Are there any um, full California salamanders left? Yeah, so uh, there are parts of the range that the hybrids haven't gotten to. So it's a naturally disjunct range. Humans have added more fragmentation um, due to mainly roads. And so um, there are certain areas that tiger salamanders cannot cross on their own, at least anymore. And so the hybrids can't get there unless humans continue to move them. And certainly humans have. So they originally got introduced in Salinas Valley, which is on the um, near the coast. But then some now there are hybrids down in Santa Barbara down on the, in the Sierra and foothills on the other side of the Central Valley. And so there's no way tiger salamanders got there on their own. People have continued to move them around, possibly as uh, bass bait. Um, at this point, it has now become illegal to own any tiger salamander in the state of California because of this threat of continuing to spread the hybrids around. So is it the purebreds that are protected or any 
salamander with tiger salamander? Yeah, so the Endangered Species Act actually doesn't say anything about how people should treat hybrids, mm -hmm. right? And so the native California tiger salamander is a listed species under the Endangered Species Act, and so it is protected and thus becomes a question are things that are 50-50 Texas, California protected? What if it's 70-30? At what point is it a pest? Because it's one of the threats to the natives is the spread of these hybrids. But are the hybrids, you know, some of their genes are from the native species. Are they protected or not? And so um, that has motivated one of my research projects that you mentioned, um, you know, I think is valuable to protect each unique species, but I think even more important is to protect entire communities or ecosystems. And so what I wanted to know is what is the role of these hybrids in the vernal pool community as a whole? And so I was taking different genotypes that fall on this native to Texas spectrum and putting them in these experimental ponds which are basically these 300-gallon cattle tanks that you can uh, design to be a pretty good mimic of a natural pond. We've shown that you can get dynamics in these tanks that are pretty similar to what you see in the wild, and then use that to determine these different genotypes, what is their role in shaping the rest of the vernal pool community. And so I was taking uh, natives, ones that are just slightly Texas, ones that are very highly Texas uh, genes, and then uh, comparing their effects on the community as a whole because my feeling was that, you know, if they keep the community in a pretty natural state, then it's better to have them than not. If the alternative is to have ponds with no tiger salamanders at all, then it's better to have these hybrids if they're maintaining the community in that natural state. And so that's uh, what this experiment was to determine was across these different treatments how similar as the community as a whole to what you would find with the natives present. And that was a few years ago, so is, is there other stuff that's been done between now and then to protect the California tiger salamander? Are they like, is it looking good or is it? Um, so what I concluded is that having any of these types of tiger salamander is gives you a more natural community state than having no tiger salamanders at all. And so if our Two alternatives are complete extirpation of tiger salamanders or having these hybrids. I would recommend having hybrids. Um, if you remove them, then uh, basically the tadpoles they're feeding on become super abundant and they eat all of the uh, paraphytin, which causes the other type of algae, which is the one up in the water column, to bloom and so you get these very murky, turbid things that are covered in floating algae rather than uh, clearer and with most of the algae on the borders of the pond. So it's a very different community state. Um, as a result of that, partially, but also as a result of other genetic work, um, the current stance of both the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the California Department of Fish and Wildlife is that they will protect the hybrids. Um, they will, for the land they have control, they will try to manage it to encourage a more native genotype because the true goal is to have actually native California genes in the California landscape. Um, 
but in terms of whether or not it's protected under the Endangered Species Act, currently the hybrids are. And um, in some of your other research, I saw that you actually had like this kind of jumping from a different thing, but still staying on the same California tiger. You have this program that you can um, identify different California tiger salamanders by their the spots on their back. So I kind of wanted just to have you talk a little bit about the interdisciplinary approach to that, because that's not necessarily by nature herpetology. That's also you know computer and computer science and modeling and all that stuff. So can you kind of talk a little bit about working with other fields as far as that goes? Yeah, so that's one of the things that I'm most excited about is to bring as much um, different types of modeling programs into conservation research. Um, two, I'm particularly excited about our integral projection models, which allow you to create really accurate demographic models of populations, so under different sets of conditions, how would you expect them to respond? Another is Maxent, which is a machine learning algorithm that allows you to predict um, where species will occur. So you sort of determine what environmental factors determine their range limits, and then you can project that through either time or space to different types of conditions. Um, I think there's more and more a need for biologists to be computer savvy, mathematically savvy, and so um, learning the more statistics, the more modeling, the more computer programming you have, the better off you're going to be. And so, right, one of these uh, tools we used was this uh, pattern recognition program. So it turns out that the spots on the, you know, we call it the California tiger salamander. Yeah. That's really because it's related to the eastern tiger salamander, which has stripes like a tiger. If you look at the California tiger salamander, it should be the leopard salamander. It has spots like a leopard. Um, and so the spot pattern on each salamander turns out to be very unique, and it gets set up very young in their life, and then it doesn't change throughout the rest of their adulthood. Um, and so if you take a picture of it, um, you can use that to identify them. But you know, I captured 40,000 salamanders over my eight years, and so no human can memorize uh, 40,000 unique spot patterns. And so uh, we got this uh, pattern, pattern recognition program where you, where, you, where you take the photograph and give it to the computer. It uh, extracts triangles of the most prominent spots. And then even if the salamander is in really radically different uh, positions by lining up these most important triangles, it can overlay the photos properly and then just do a regression to see whether or not the spots are in the same position. And so then it gives you these are the most similar pictures we've had in the past. And then the human can go in and say, yes, this is the same salamander or not. So it really simplifies the process of going through that many photos. Um, and so that was a very valuable tool because um, that allows you to track individuals through time. And that's the data that feeds into these demographic models. So you can say, based on certain characteristics of the salamander, what was their probability of doing X different important life history events, uh, breeding, surviving, growing, and that's how you create these demographic models that allow you to predict under different conditions how would the population as a whole respond. And so are you the one that made those models, or do you know other people? That the pattern recognition yeah. program? Yeah. 
so that was something that uh, we hired a guy from actually England. Uh, he has a company called Conservation Research Limited. He has created these pattern recognition programs for a number of different species. I think it was originally for sea lions in the North Sea, um, but then he found out that you can just tweak the algorithm slightly for each new species, and he's done it for whale sharks. Uh, he does a lot of work with tigers in India, uh, giraffes. So basically anything that has some sort of color pattern, you can use um, this pattern recognition program for. Okay, cool. Um, and so, from how did you go from being in California to here now, Miami? Right. So, um, in academics, it's very common. You move around a lot. Uh, so, you know, I applied for jobs all over the U.S. and Canada. Actually, uh, I did. So I did one postdoc at UC Davis, but then I did a second one at University of Toronto. Um, my wife is also an academic. She was also applying all over. And then um, one of the places that would give us a joint hiring offer was University of Miami. And it seemed like a very exciting place to do research. Um, one of the nice things here is all of the diversity of different native habitat types. So unlike further north or um, in other areas of the country, there's a lot of different habitats here that are pretty unique to South Florida and that you wouldn't find anywhere else. And so they, of course, then have their unique set of species. And so there's a lot of scope here for doing really interesting uh, ecology and also conservation work. So can you talk a little bit about some of the research that you're doing now, what specific things you're more interested in in the different ecosystems? Yeah, so I'm still uh, primarily interested in conservation, particularly of reptiles and amphibians. Um, I'm still interested in these different modeling tools and applying it to conservation. Um, but now that I'm here in Miami, I'm trying to uh, do that a lot more with local systems. Um, and so uh, three systems that I've gotten particularly interested in are um, first the Everglades, so obviously the Everglades restoration is probably the biggest restoration project in the world. Um, and so uh, I got a grant from the South Florida Water Management District to start work at one of their facilities. Um, I guess similar to the uh, Vernal Pool Community Study I talked about where um, I'm taking, again, this community-wide approach. And so they're basically testing out different hydrological treatments um, to see which one would best restore the Everglades. And so my particular approach is uh, which one of these hydrological treatments gives you the most natural uh, community of reptiles and amphibians. And so basically, it's a very cool facility up in uh, Palm Beach County. Uh, they have four eight-hectare impoundments, so like really big. And so it's big enough to encompass a lot of what makes an Everglades ecosystem unique. And so uh, they can completely manipulate the hydrology in each of these four impoundments. And so they're trying out different treatments that may eventually get applied to the Everglades as a whole. And so then um, I and other members of my lab go in and sample in those impoundments to try to get an idea of what the reptile and amphibian community in each is, and then say, all right, which of these different treatments is giving us what we think is the most natural community 
and then the management recommendation would be that this would be a better restoration technique to later get applied to the Everglades as a whole. Cool, and I also saw that you are doing some research on the pine rocklands. Yeah, so that's one of the other really interesting systems. Um, so that would be the native habitat type right here on campus if it hadn't gotten turned into coral gables in the 1920s. Um, it's a you know, it was an ecosystem that originally had a very small extent. Um, it has now been reduced to only 2% of that original because um, it's basically the habitat that gr grows along the Miami Rock Ridge, which is all the highest elevation habitat in Miami. And in Miami, where highest elevation is 20, 25 feet, every foot counts. And so when humans came in, they, of course, wanted to develop the highest points because they were the ones that were less likely to get flooded. And so the first thing to get removed was the pine rocklands. And now if you're driving around Miami every once in a while, you come across this native preserve, which seems very out of context now in suburban Miami, but um, it's basically a few emergent pines amongst a subcanopy of uh, saw palmettos, just short palm tree. Um, and um, it again had a very unique set of species, many of which are now endangered just because so much of it has been destroyed. And so um, I'm interested in how that fragmentation process affected the community of reptiles and amphibians that was originally in these pine rocklands. And then the other thing that's pretty unique to South Florida is how many invasive species we have. Um, so we have more non-native reptiles and amphibians than anywhere else in the world. Um, so looking at how this combination of all these invasives and the fragmentation collectively uh, influence the native reptiles and amphibians that should be here um, is something else that my lab has started researching. And so uh, one of my graduate students did a survey of 30 Miami parks. Half of them were native Pine Rockland, half were urban parks, so like mostly playing fields and whatever humans most like. And so um, comparing between those what is the current community of reptiles and amphibians. And it turns out that either way, it is now almost entirely filled with these invasive species. So 90% um, of the reptiles and amphibians you come across are not native to South Florida. And I think most people living here don't realize that. they. Yeah. Um, Actually, a lot of them have a sort of love for the, all the lizards because you see them all the time, um, which is great, but they don't think about the fact that they're not actually native to Florida. So what are some species that are native? Um, so the most common native you see is the green anole. Um, there are now also at least five very common uh, non-native anoles. The, most, the thing you see most often is the brown anole, which is from Cuba. Um, that's the one that scurries across every sidewalk that you walk across on campus. Um, but there's a similar closely related uh, native species, which is the green anole. It um, tends to be more up in the foliage because it's green to blend with the leaves, whereas the brown is uh, brown to blend in more with the trunk of the tree, and it runs down under the ground a lot. Um, even that one now people think is probably a hybrid with the Cuban green anole, which may have helped it uh, withstand the brown, the evasion of the brown. So the hybrids are uh, apparently a little beefier and 
that are able to compete with the brown anole. Um, so if it's considered native, that green anole is what you is the native you see most often. Uh, other natives, uh, the most common snake you see in urban Miami is the black racer. That's a very fast sort of gray colored, dark gray colored snake. Um, you basically never see a native amphibian within the city limits. Yeah, if you go out into the, if you go out into the Everglades, you see the native tree frogs. But at this point, within the city, the Cuban tree frog, which is now the largest tree frog in North America, not native though, uh, is everywhere. Like if um, I stop treating my pool with chemicals for a couple weeks, the gr Cubans are breeding in it immediately. Um, cane toads, which are from Central America. Um, Greenhouse frogs, which are this small leaf litter frog from the Caribbean. Um, those are all you see within the city limits now. Um, so there's a few other native lizards. There's a handful of skink species, um, some other native snakes, but they're all pretty rare. And I can talk about um, if there's another system that I've started working on here in the Florida scrub, but oh, it's yeah. up to you we if you want to hear about that yeah, or yeah, if yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know we've already talked a long time. Um, right, so I talked about the Everglades and the Pine Rocklands. Yeah. The other local system I've gotten involved in is the Florida scrub. So that's again, a unique habitat to Florida. It's along sort of the central ridge of Florida. So back when most of Florida was underwater, this was an island. Um, as a result, it has a lot of sandy soils because it used to be on the coast. Um, and also has the highest rate of endemism in the southeast US because it used to be an island. A lot of unique species evolved there that weren't anywhere else. And so um, because it has this uh, unique pool of species and also um, there's a biological station, Archbold Biological Station on, in the Florida scrub has been operating since I think early 40s. And so they have this really long history of ecological research, long data sets. And so that makes it a really um, nice system to work in. And so um, I've been starting collaborations with some of the scientists there on both um, reptiles. So I have the longest running uh, mark recapture study of gopher tortoises, which are probably the most important from a conservation perspective, reptile and amphibian in Florida. Um, Florida has the largest uh, population of this species, um, but all turtle species are in pretty bad shape, and so there's real concern about their future. Um, so I've started working um, with them on analyzing some of that data. Um, and then uh, they also have a lot of uh, endangered plant species that are unique to the Florida scrub. Again, they have lots of long-term demographic data on that. And so um, I've been working with um, my wife, who's another professor in the department. Our, we have a shared postdoc um, with some of the researchers at Archbold to turn these into, uh, again, demographic models and use that to sort of predict um, landscape scale patterns of um, what is most important to these species and how that relates to their distribution. So uh, real quick, what is the gopher 
turtle or tortoise? Tortoise. Tortoise. And like, why is it important for conservation? Um, right. So turtles are just naturally very susceptible to human uh, land use changes, environmental changes. Um, you know, they live a really long time. They have a really low recruitment rate. So the idea is, you know, once they've gone first through the first couple years of their life, they're basically indestructible. I mean, that's the sort of tortoise life history strategy is that if they can just make it past being a really small turtle, then they're encompassed in this shell and they, you know, mortality should go down to near zero. Um, but they're, of course, not protected from humans. And so um, even a small percentage increase in mortality for an adult turtle can doom a population, right? If you increase mortality by just 2% due to, say, roadkill, in the long term, that population is no longer viable. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, over, it's like two-thirds of turtle species across the world are endangered now, um, just because of this very vulnerable life history strategy in the face of humans. And so, um, the gopher tortoises, you know, there's still hundreds of thousands in Florida, but there probably used to be way more. Um, we've really fragmented their habitat. They're an ecosystem engineer, so they build these burrow systems, which turn out to be imp provide important habitat for all. I think they've documented 350 other species that use them. And so they were a really important part of the native ecosystem across most of Florida, which was these longleaf pine savannas. Um, and so we need to keep them if we want to have any of that sort of native uh, community ecosystem type um, around. And um, there's a lot of concern about our ability to do so just because tortoises are so vulnerable to any sort of change in their environment. And so when you're picking a new research topic like the gopher tortoise, I'm sure you know somewhat about it, but how much more reading and research do you have to do before you even begin starting to like ask those questions so you know like this is a problem and we need to kind of start answering those questions. How much background do you do? Um, right, so You know, you can learn pretty quickly, like, these are the most important issues or species. But then, you know, what are you going to do to improve the situation that is unique from what everyone else is already doing? That's probably the much harder question, right? So I can learn very fast that gopher tortoises are important. But lots of people know that, so lots of people are studying it. So what would I do that is you know, unique to help that. And um, that's true for basically any project you're coming in on. Um, collaborating with people who have been working in it previously is a huge help. Um, so being able to collaborate with the people at Archbold that have experience with the species is really a major way to enter this new system. And then as you get immersed in it and get more experience, then it becomes easier to say, all right, well, now I know enough about it to say um, this is what's the most important questions to be asking. Um, but in order to get that entry, um, being able to bring in a unique skill set is important. And so um, what I and my graduate student, um, who's also working, with it on me, working on it with me, have been doing is um, we have previous experience doing demographic models. And so the math is the same. 
Um, and so we can help them create these um, models. And then in doing so, we learn more about the species as, as a whole. And that will probably help us come up with new questions to ask in the future. And so you're also particularly interested in like these long, I don't know what the word is, but like long data sets, you know, collecting over years and years. You did eight years of research on specifically one project. What do you have to say? Because that research paper would take years to write because you're collecting data. So you kind of always have ongoing projects and things like that. So kind of what, how many are you working on at one point and kind of what's the timeline for things, you know? Is it always like a continual flow or is it like a cycle? Um, I think you want it to be a continual flow. Um, <clears throat> when you move across the country to a new university, that sort of interrupts it to some extent. I mean, you're continuing to finish off papers from your previous um, work, starting new projects. So I guess ideally it would still be a continual flow. Um, but then once, you know, the goal would be you have a set of large topics you're working on. Each of them has a bunch of sub-projects within it. Each of those sub-projects is going to turn into a paper. And so, right, I said I collected eight years of data on a single population of this endangered uh, California tiger salamander. But that wasn't going to be just one single research paper. There were a lot of sub-questions, a lot of different ways you can analyze that large data set. And so um, that's been used to create a number of different papers. I'm still um, working on it. I've currently turned it into this um, integral projection model, so a demographic model that describes how California tiger salamanders would respond to different management scenarios in terms of how people are managing the habitat and also different climate scenarios. So as we expect different things under climate change, how how you think the populations would respond. So how many are you generally like working on at once? Is there like a limit to, oh no, I can't pick up this new thing or I'm um, not doing enough? Uh, right. So probably to be successful, you need to be doing as many as you can possibly handle without letting them fall apart. Um, I guess so far this year I've submitted six um, papers and you know some of them get accepted, some of them get rejected with these recommendations for how to make it better, some get accepted pending changes and so you know those are in all different stages of the publishing process. Um, some are going to go smoothly, some aren't. And then, you know, while those are going on, there's other ones that are in the data collection or data analysis that are going to be the next set to actually get written up. So it's, yeah, there's a continual uh, cycle of papers coming through. And what would you say is your favorite part of the process? Like if you had to, your favorite? My study. favorite? Um, well, I really enjoy field work. I think that's true for a lot of ecologists is that they like being outside. Um, so I loved my um, PhD work when I was out monitoring the tiger salamanders every day, or you know, a lot of the days out of the year. Um, once you're the professor, you aren't the one collecting the data very often. Um, I still try to go out with my students as much as I can, both because I enjoy it, but also I think it's very beneficial for them to 
get advice from people who have actually seen the issues they're facing because like they can come back and tell me what problems they're having, but it's not quite the same as being out there and saying, oh yeah, that is a hard piece of data to collect. What could we do to make it easier or to make it more accurate? Um, I guess the other part I really like is the analysis. Um, so um, that's something I get to do um, at least a good portion of, um, but also something that I more and more need to be training other people how to analyze their data sets rather than doing it all myself. So why is it that you continue to do what you do? Like, what, what really makes you like this job and doing all these things? Um, well, I guess I have a passion for it, both from the basic and the applied science side. So from applied science, I am very passionate about conservation. I think it's the most important thing we can be doing is trying to protect our environment because at obviously our current way we're using it, um, we're going to use it up. And the Earth may not be unlivable, but will be a much less desirable place to live in in, I think, the near future. And it would be sad if that is what we are dooming future human generations to, that they will all have poorer lives than we did. Um, and then from a basic science, I just really enjoy finding patterns in things. And so, you know, what are the patterns in the composition of these communities? What are the patterns in the fluctuations in these populations? And it's just sort of exciting to collect a set of data and then use mathematical tools to pull it apart and find out what sort of makes everything work the way it does. So we've come to the end of episode one. Thank you so much to Dr. Searcy for volunteering his time into participating in this interview with us. Also, thank you to Elise, my left-hand girl, who helped with the questions and the producing of this content, this video, this interview. If you are listening to this on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, we also have a YouTube channel where we will be posting the full, full-length video interview and also supplemental small shorter videos covering the interview topics in a little bit more condensed easier to digest way if that's something you're interested feel free to subscribe to us on youtube we also have an instagram we have a website illustratedresearch.com pretty much all those things we also have a patreon that these podcast episodes will be released a week in advance to our patreons so if that's something else you're interested in feel free to check that out if you're on YouTube, it'll be linked in the description. If you're on iTunes, you can follow us on Instagram. You know, the whole thing. But yes, thank you so much to Dr. Searcy. Thank you to Elise. Thank you so much for listening. And we will see you. Well, we won't see you. It's a podcast. But we'll talk to you. You'll hear from us very shortly. In the next episode, we will be talking about photosynthetic animals and gene therapy and how plants and animals combine when they combine, how do they combine, is that even possible, a slug that looks like a leaf, who even knows. I'm really excited, it's something I'm very, very interested in, and I hope you are too, so be sure to subscribe, to like, to follow, to hear about all that exciting stuff next week.